The Dark Tide by Vera Britton, read by Claire Higgins. About this digital talking book. Navigation of this digital talking book is by chapter at the first navigation level. This digital talking book was produced by Visibility Limited, formerly the Association for the Blind of Western Australia, in Perth, Western Australia. To support the production of this and other digital talking books, please contact Visibility on country code plus 61, area code 08 9311 8202 or by email library at visibility.com.au. Life was not the full sea flood, but the dark tide, moaning and desolate, going out in storm and rain. The sea of which he is always dreaming is terrible and cruel as well as august and ennobling. But he is sure of one thing. It is through the struggle with is and such is it that man alone can become man. F. Melian Starwell Chapter 1 Drayton The poets who love to think of Oxford as a magic city of dreaming spires must have welcomed the aeroplane as an aesthetic mode of transit. The Great Western Railway was not planned to aid the artistic imagination. Its road to Parnassus lies between the local cemetery and the gasworks, which challenge attention before Tom Tower and the Spire of St Mary's. But for Daphne Lethbridge, gazing eagerly from the carriage window, the familiar view had never been so full of enchantment, and she clasped her suit as the great bulging sides of the works. She was she was definitely twenty two. And she was going back to the village. She was bored brought by the purpose of her own adventures. She had thoughts of it just as of a thunderstorm. Her spiritual pool of existence was merely ruffled and disturbed. Only from afar had she seen the lightning and heard the fury of the rain. She was never very clever at finding her luggage, and by the time she emerged from the involved mass of bicycles on the platform, all the available taxis had disappeared. As the hansom she was obliged to take rattled under the railway bridge, her year at Drayton College seemed much nearer to her than the two years' motor-driving at Portsmouth which had followed it. It seemed so unbelievable now that, despite academic opposition, she had gone down to do war work at the end of that first year and had found rest for an uneasy conscience in the transport of naval officers. Of course, it had not been the kind of war work she would have chosen. She was never certain that all those motor drives were really quite necessary. She would greatly have preferred the vivid realities of an army hospital or the Women's Auxiliary Corps with its raided camps. But Mr. and Mrs. Lethbridge would not dream of such horrible experiences for their only child. So Daphne had perforce to content herself with the motor driving, thereby winning the well-fed approbation of Thorbury Park, the Manchester suburb where she lived with her parents. Well, it was over at last, and she need no longer repress her yearning ambition, that ambition which wanted to learn everything and get the best degree in history that woman ever had, 
and then to write things which would make the name of Daphne Lethbridge a household word in English literature. She minutes after the cab had deposited her at Drayton, and moved self-consciously across the entrance hall, whose windows were opened by the burnished leaves of the autumn creeper. Her own year had gone down at the end of that summer, and the groups of unfamiliar faces regarded her with the insolent curiosity usually accorded to a newcomer in her first term. They think I'm a fresher, said Daphne to herself indignantly, and she proceeded to read the notices with apparent unconcern. Rangers, her hand was seized and shaken jubilantly by a blonde person with a Daphne was quite relieved to recognize Julia Tate, a member of her own year who likewise caught the infectious fever of patriotism and had gone down at the same time as herself. It's really Daphne! How absolutely topping to see you again! Isn't it simply ripping to be back? Splendid! Daphne agreed. But a little strange after doing such different things. One feels rather lost. You know, just to begin with. Yes, one does. I did too. But I was awfully lucky to get let off from the ministry in time to come back last term and see our year go down. They were dreadfully sick you couldn't manage it too. I tried, said Daphne, but it was no good. June was the best I could do. I envied you tremendously. Never mind, I'll tell you all the news. This was no idle boast on the part of Julia, who was privately known among her friends as Who's Who. Her power of acquiring information amounted to genius. There was scarcely a member of Drayton with whom she had not corresponded at one time or another. She was on intimate terms with the whole of the senior common room and knew the private love affairs of all the junior dons. She continued the conversation volubly. I should have missed you if you hadn't come back, though the second year's an awfully decent crowd. I never expected you to arrive so soon, though. I had lunch. Yes, I had it before I started. I've only come from London today. I've been staying with some cousins. Good. You'll have heaps of time to settle in. It'll jolly well take some doing, though, after two years. I'll come and help you. Our rooms are quite close. Daphne sighed and looked vaguely up and down the list of rooms on the notice board. Julia was certainly a little overwhelming just at first, but she was very friendly and kind and Daphne felt suddenly grateful to her for being there. It would have been so strange to come back to Drayton without a year to belong to and find that one knew nobody at all. At Portsmouth, with the remembrance of a glowing first-year reputation crowned by distinction in history previous, it had seemed so easy to return impressively to Drayton, obtain a brilliant first, and then embark upon a career of uninterrupted triumph. But she felt a little frightened now that she was back among the beloved buildings, which had watched the struggles of so many ambitions and had seen so many generations pass to whom failure was a more familiar name than success. Where are our rooms, Martindale or Wilson? she inquired, turning from the notice board to Julia. Oh, Martindale, of course. Wilson's crammed with freshers as usual. You've got 105 and I'm 110. I wrote and asked the bursar to put us close together. I knew she'd do anything for you. Daphne started guiltily. Goodness, I'd almost forgotten. Of course, I must go and see her at once. Look here, Julia, I think I'll get my interviewing done before I start to unpack. Miss Lawson's got sure to expect me to see her before anyone else, and then I suppose I'll have to go to the history tutor sometime. Oh, Miss O'Neill, you like her all right. She came here the term after we went down. She's a ripping person and quite young. Oh, thirty-ish or thereabouts, I suppose, but she looks a kid. 
I'll go and see her before the crush, if I can, said Daphne. I feel all in a muddle about my work. Perhaps I'll see you in the hall at tea time. Right-o, if you don't, I'll look you up directly after. And Julia trotted amiably down the passage, leaving Daphne at the foot of the stairs which led to the principal's office. Daphne went up and knocked at Miss Lawson Scott's door rather tentatively, for generations of Drayton students had not learned to call their principal the law without good cause. The white-haired, ruddy-cheeked woman with the gracious manner and the iron will always made Daphne feel incapable of speaking the truth. But she possessed one advantage over most of her fellow students. She was one of the few who could talk to Miss Lawson Scott without having to look up. The greeting, when it came, contained nothing that could terrify her. How do you do, Miss Lethbridge? I'm very glad to see you back again after such a long absence. I hope the war work hasn't quite put everything out of your head. That's right. I'm sure it will all come back to you as soon as you begin. I haven't forgotten what excellent work you gave us in your first year at Drayton. Daphne was spared the trouble of looking for the bursar by colliding with that lady at the foot of the principal's stairs. Miss Jenkinson was the one thorn among Daphne's Drayton roses, for being her godmother, she took a proprietary and somewhat inconvenient interest in her welfare. She was an angular and lugubrious woman, with a remarkable eye for people's little defects, and an invariable habit of stripping the glamour from one's dearest friend in a single sentence. "'Dear me, careless!' she gasped, almost overthrown by the energetic impact of her goddaughter. "'Dear me, steady, steady!' Then, as Daphne stood, murmuring hasty apologies, Miss Jenkinson suddenly changed from irritation to her nearest approach to a smile. Why, it's my dear Daphne, I might have known. How very pleasant to see you among us again. Let me look at you, my dear child. And she lifted Daphne's unwilling face to the light. Ah, yes, it tells, it tells. All the strain of that terrible hard work. Out in all weathers, too, your mother told me. There's nothing like a strain, is there, for drawing lines on a young face. I hope, my dear, you won't find that the other students seem very childish. I'm afraid you'll be much older than the year you'll have to work with. Daphne, who had been so delightedly conscious of her youth in the train, began to feel a dismal sense of age creeping over her, but her thoughts were immediately diverted by Miss Jenkinson into another channel. And how's your dear mother? Still enjoying as good health as ever? Not growing any stouter, I hope. Long ago, when they were both small children, Daphne's mother and Miss Jenkinson had been at school together. Ill-assorted as they seemed even then, they had never ceased to maintain a regular correspondence, though their subsequent careers had been as different as two women's lives can well be. Daphne's mother, only daughter of Megson's Manchester Emporiums, had early achieved a step upwards in the social scale by marrying Herbert Lethbridge, a young shipbuilder whose modest fortunes received an immediate impetus from the wealth she brought him. Daphne had no recollection of their first home close to the docks. She only remembered Thorbury Park, the fashionable Manchester suburb, and the series of moves through various houses of gradually increasing dimensions till they ended in The Gables, an ample dwelling with a large garden and two tennis courts, which exuded prosperity from every blade of grass. Nobody, on the other hand, had wanted to marry Miss Jenkinson. In her early days, she had been considered scientific, but a fourth in zoology at Oxford convinced her that she had mistaken her vocation. She possessed, however, that faculty for clinging to university jobs, which is often denied to her more brilliant sisters who achieve firsts. 
and her experience in the domestic department of various provincial universities had finally brought her her heart's desire, the bursarship of Drayton College. When, to the proud satisfaction of Daphne's mother and the secret misgivings of her father, Daphne was found at school to be turning out intellectual, it was to Miss Jenkinson that Mrs. Lethbridge, who had never derived any profit from her own education, had written for advice. The result had been that the already willing Daphne was entered for Drayton College at an early age. After a few minutes' conversation, Daphne managed to shake off Miss Jenkinson for the time being. Not very cleverly, because Daphne was by no means a tactful person. She left the rueful bursa still standing at the foot of the stairs, and hurried off down the long corridor to find the history tutor, Miss O'Neill. She was immediately disconcerted by the slim, dark-haired girl who answered, Come in, to her knock. Thirty? Well, perhaps, but all the same. Daphne was always a little disturbed in the presence of youth triumphant. She liked to find achievement middle-aged, and to see authority with grey hair and spectacles. It was always her tendency to overestimate the age of celebrities. She must be at least forty, she would say, looking enviously at a new portrait of Miss So-and-so, the talented young authoress of, and sometimes to a friend at a concert. That girl on the platform must be years older than she looks. Daphne longed, of course, for the time to come when she could really begin to write, but all the same she was sometimes appalled at the thought of that terrifying plunge into chapter one of her first novel. The universal middle age of genius spared her the distresses of envy and misgivings about the rapidity of her own progress, and prolonged to a comfortable indefiniteness the pleasant period of promise. But here before her was youth, holding one of the most important positions at Drayton, youth, grave and brilliant, yet shy and humble and astonishingly tolerant, perhaps because of the remote humour that lurked behind those baffling grey eyes, for the gods had been in a delightful mood when they made Patricia O'Neill. You're Miss O'Neill, aren't you? Daphne began uncertainly. Yes, and you are Miss? Lethbridge, I've been away for two years, you know, and I thought perhaps I'd better come and see you early. Miss Lethbridge, of course I remember. You wrote to me, didn't you? And Miss O'Neill took up from her desk a slip of paper with names written upon it. But I thought, she said, that I put you down on the list to come and see me between six and seven. The list? Daphne looked vague. Yes, the list of names on the history notice board in the hall. Daphne flushed crimson. I'd uh, quite forgotten that one looked on the notice board for the time, she stammered. I'm so sorry, I'll go away and come back again at six. Quite gently, Miss O'Neill restrained her. It doesn't matter a bit. It's difficult, isn't it, to remember things for two years? Now you're here, I'll see you at once. Do sit down, won't you? Daphne collapsed into an armchair much too low for her. Miserably, she drew her knees up to her chin, then decided to stretch them out again. Miss O'Neill did not notice her. She was rummaging for Daphne's letter in the chaos of papers on her table. Let me see. I think you told me that your early English was weak, didn't you? Daphne agreed volubly. Yes, very weak. I really never knew very much, and now it seems such a long time since I did anything at all that I feel all in a muddle. I know. Miss O'Neill quietly stemmed the tide. But I'm sure you'll get on all right as soon as you really begin again. Miss Lawson Scott has told me what good work you did in your first year. Nobody seems to do any early English at school, she continued. 
I expect you'll find you know as much as the others. I think, though, that I'd better take you for it myself. I'm taking most of the second year, and as you feel weak in the subject, I'll try to give you an hour separately. I'm afraid you'll have to share for your foreign history, though. It was period eight you wanted to do, I think. Uh, yes, if that's the most modern one. Miss O'Neill abandoned her search for Daphne's letter and consulted another list. I am sending you for that to Mr. Stefanoff, 5pm on Fridays at Gloucester. He'll see you first at 6pm on Monday. Daphne gasped at the unfamiliar name. Mr. who? Stefanoff, repeated Miss O'Neill, smiling. I believe he's a Pole, but I'm not quite sure. I've never actually met him. But he used to be at Gloucester as an undergraduate, and now he's just come back to be a don after various adventures in journalism and other things. He's supposed to know nearly everything there is to be known about the 19th century. He takes very few women, so I was lucky to get him for you and Miss Dennison. Miss Dennison? queried Daphne. Yes. We didn't know she was coming back when I wrote and told you that all the second years were fixed up and you might have to coach with someone from another college. Is Miss Dennison a second year, then? She will be working with the second years, said Miss O'Neill, but she's really very much senior to everybody and probably some years older than you. She was up for a year at Drayton right at the beginning of the war, and then she went down to do war work, so at least you would have that in common. Daphne looked thoughtful. These Drayton patriots seem to be accumulating. They rather detract from the glory of one's personal achievement. Do you know what kind of war work she did? she inquired. Oh, nursing of some sort, I believe, answered Miss O'Neill. But I don't know much about it, except that it was mostly foreign service. From what I hear, though, she seems to be quite a brilliant girl. I know she writes, and has published a book, so I'm sure that you'll find her interesting. Oh, I'm sure I shall, agreed Daphne, with a warmth that she was far from feeling, and proceeded to consult the lecture list with Miss O'Neill. She felt a little chilled and frustrated as she went up the dark stairs to find her room. Quite definitely, though a little shamefacedly, she disliked the idea of coaching with this Miss Dennison. She had known that she would have to share at least one of her coaching times, but never doubted that it would be with someone to whom she could show, very kindly and generously, of course, but quite unmistakably, her own superiority both in intellect and experience. And now fate had sent her the one person to whom she could exhibit neither. Once again, she was to be thrown into intimate contact with someone who had crossed in youth the gulf between ambition and attainment, someone who could boast a foreign service and a published book, the two achievements which of all things in the world Daphne most envied. Peering along the dark corridor, she at length discovered her room, gloomy in the autumn twilight and littered with her luggage. As she knelt down to light a fire in the cold grate, coming back to Drayton did not seem to be such a triumphant business after all. She had just made the fire go and opened all her boxes when Julia bounced in. Julia had changed for dinner, and across the front of her hair she wore a bright-coloured ribbon, whose particular shade had no relation whatever to the rest of her clothing. Hello, got the fire to go. What luck. I say, I've discovered another of our year who's coming back. Who? asked Daphne, wrestling with a recalcitrant drawer. Oh, not one of our little lot, but quite a nice person. Cecilia Maine, English school, you know. She had an op for Pendy, the vac after we left, and it went wrong, and she's been away for two years. Hello, what a sighting-looking evening dress. Daphne regarded the bright blue spangles dubiously. 
Oh, do you think so? It was made by Mother's dressmaker, but I'm not quite sure that there isn't rather too much colour about it. Well, I expect it's a relief after that horrid Women's Legion uniform. You know, Daphne, Julia edged closer to the boxes, I'd made quite certain that you weren't coming back. Why ever not? I always meant to come back. Yes, I know, but it was something in your letters. The others noticed it too. I asked them last term. My dear Julia, whatever do you mean? Well, you know, it was that naval officer you wrote so much about. We were all quite sure, really, that you were going to get engaged. Oh, Captain Grant. Daphne flung some underclothes irritably into a drawer. He was simply the officer who used my car more than the others. There wasn't anything of that sort at all. She flung in more underclothes, more irritably. I never had any idea of getting engaged. Nor, as Daphne well knew, had anyone else. Julia's insinuations had aroused an old bitterness within her. How ludicrous that her friend should have imagined such a thing. She thought again of all the girls at the depot who had received letters, who had had invitations to stay, and of the half-dozen or so who had become engaged while she was there. And she wondered, as she had wondered so many times during the past two years, why of all those naval officers whom she had driven and had tea with and flirted with, None had ever written to her or come back to see her as they came back to the others. Why was it? She had been much cleverer than most of the girls, and though she was often untidy and some people thought her remarkable-looking, she knew that she could never really be called plain. The girls at the manor school at Northport had always said that she was beautiful and had given her a leading part in most of the school plays. She was rather too big for the heroine, but she had often been the handsome hero, whether the Scarlet Pimpernel or Romeo or Hiawatha. She was not mistaken in thinking that she had suited these parts very well, though the slightly masculine element in her aquiline nose and strongly moulded chin was discredited by the perpetually parted lips and wide-open china-blue eyes full of an eager vitality. Her cheeks were usually pale, but the richness of her colouring was assured by her thick, Slightly waving fair hair, not flaxen, but gold with a reddish tinge of ripe corn. Her light brown lashes were long and curled delicately at the tips. The strong profile came from some unknown ancestor, but Daphne owed to her mother much of her colouring and to her father her splendid height. Mrs Lethbridge had fortunately failed to bequeath her flurry complexion and short, expansive bulk, so that Daphne possessed a refinement of form and feature to which her mother, even in extreme youth, had never been able to lay claim. Daphne, regarded by her relations as a fine girl, was broad-shouldered and deep-chested, but many a mannequin at a fashionable dressmaker's would have envied her slim waist and hips. She suffered, however, from a perpetual inability to decide what to do with her long legs and large, clumsy hands. Her splendid physical development disguised a mental immaturity that was almost chaotic though she only realised the chaos at intervals, just whenever, in fact, she particularly wanted to be dignified and impressive. "'How did you get on with Miss O'Neill?' again began Julia, gathering from Daphne's silence that the last topic had been somewhat unfortunate, not to say unproductive. "'Oh, all right. She's taking me herself for English, but for foreign I'm to go to Mr. Stefanoff at Gloucester, with a Miss Dennison who's come back from nursing or something.' Oh, I can tell you all about them. And Julia settled down to enjoy herself. It was just like Julia, thought Daphne, still rather irritated, to come back last term and find out everything about everybody. 
Miss O'Neill told me about Mr. Stefanoff, she said aloud. Yes, he was up at Gloucester last term giving some lectures before he settled in, began Julia, nothing daunted. You'll have a killing time if you're going to coach with him. He took one or two of our year for revision just before schools. They said he was awfully bright and bucked them up no end. He's rather queer looking too and has a bit of a foreign accent. How old? inquired Daphne, hastily putting away her shoes, which always depressed her because they were size eight. Oh, youngish middle age, I suppose. It's difficult to tell. He's rather fat. But he's done all kinds of frightfully thrilling things. And as for Central Europe, Julia, interrupted Daphne firmly, feeling the need of information about a possible rival more urgent for the moment than that which concerned a tutor, what do you know about this Miss Denison? Oh, a heap in one way and another. I heard about her from Miss Tavistock, who knows her quite well. Used to take her for Latin when she did history previous. And then I had tea with Miss Lawson Scott. Julia always included herself in her stories whenever possible. It was the first holiday I'd had from the Ministry after we went down, and the law was simply full of Virginia Denison's book, which had just come out. It caused quite a sensation. One or two reviewers found out her real age and made such a fuss because they hardly believe a girl could have written it. Said it was the point of view of a cynical woman of forty. I suppose you've read it. No, I've never even heard of it, admitted Daphne, not quite sure whether to be proud or ashamed of the fact. Julia looked at her incredulously. Well, you are. And a Draytonian, too. I read it ages ago. What is it, a novel? asked Daphne. No, not exactly. It's more a sort of satire. It's called Earth's Extremity, and it's about the attitude of some people in a small country town towards the war. My word, it is merciless, too. Simply tears those people's insides to pieces. You will have to sit up, my child, if you're going to coach with a Virginia Denison. The law thinks no end of her. I think she sounds most unpleasant, said Daphne, whose apprehensions were increasing. And anyway, I don't suppose she'll remember much history after all these years. I don't know. She did history previous just about the time when HP was started, and they say nobody's ever got such a brilliant distinction since. But of course she's knocked about a lot since then, France and the East and hospital ships and all sorts of places. Daphne made one last effort to discover some loophole for superiority. But what's she like, Julia? I haven't an idea, really. She must be getting on, though, quite twenty-six or seven. Miss Tavistock says she was very pretty in her first year, but of course that's ages ago. She says she was always reading Dryden and Swift and those eighteenth-century satirist Johnnies. I believe she made no end of a splash when she came up. Her father's Denison's China, you know. Pots of money. A sudden burst of laughter from the staircase broke the thread of Julia's discourse. She dashed to Daphne's door and opened it a little, finding the corridor flooded with light. Hello, she exclaimed. That sounds like the set arriving. The set? Yes, that topping second-year crowd I told you about. That's what they call themselves. It's half joke and half serious. She looked down the corridor, but there was no one to be seen, so she closed the door and came back. I got to know them all last term, the whole ten of them. They're all congregated round this corridor now. Was that your doing too? Daphne inquired, beginning to think that Julia's managing powers had no limit. Yes, more or less. I got round the bursar. We fixed it all up at the end of last term. They wanted me to join them. 
They're not a bit in awe of me, little devils, though I'm really a fourth year. They want to know you too. I've told them all about you. Daphne felt quite sure that she had. Look here, I tell you what, Julie went on. Suppose I have them into Coco tomorrow evening and ask you, and then you can meet them. Oh, no, not tomorrow. Uh, let's say Monday. That'll give them all time to arrive. That's really them, she exclaimed, as a fresh burst of laughter came from the corridor. I must go and see them. And she dashed out of the room. Beginning of term conversation immediately broke out in a spasm just opposite Daphne's door. Hello, Eileen. Why, it's Julia. Hello, Julia. Hello, Jane. Had a good vac? Topping, thanks. Done no work. This went on for a few minutes, and then the door was burst open and Daphne dragged by Julie into the midst of the crowd of strangers. Eileen, Gladys, Jane. Here's Miss Lethbridge, whom I told you about last term. Got back to Drayton at last. How do you do, Miss Lethbridge? I hope you like coming back. Must be very queer after being away all that time. Their voices broke on Daphne's bewildered consciousness, like waves upon the shore of some distant sea. I say, sang out a voice from the circumference of the circle, I've just made some tea. That stuff in hall was absolute dishwash. Come and have some, all of you. Do come and have a cup, Miss Lethbridge, won't you? Yes, come along, exclaimed Julia, seizing her by the arm. So Daphne was dragged away from her half-finished unpacking, and received, amidst an uproar of conversation, into the genial exclusiveness of the set.